Good morning. It is good to see all of you here on this Labor Day weekend. All of you who decided to stay in town. There's a lot of them who went out of town, but we're glad that you're here. And we're glad that you have come to join us here at Ivy Creek Baptist Church this morning. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, would you please take them and turn with me once again to the Gospel of Mark. And today we are going to be in chapter 16, which... You're good students, you'll know is the last chapter. So we're starting the last chapter after having been studying through the Gospel of Mark since January of last year. We are coming close to being uh, through with that study. And if you've been with us in the last few weeks, you'll know that, that the, the emphasis that we have looked at over the last few weeks, and, and particularly in chapters 14 and 15, we've seen the trial of Jesus. We then have witnessed the crucifixion of Jesus. We also looked at the death of Jesus. And then last week, as we came and we studied about the burial of Jesus. And, and you'll remember, as I, as I mentioned last week, specifically with regard to the burial of Jesus, in my own personal research, and uh, that, that there was very little information, very few sermons, very, very little commentary written with regard to the details about Jesus' burial. You might also find it interesting, though, um, that there are also far fewer sermons on Jesus' resurrection than you might imagine. Far fewer sermons on His resurrection than there are on His crucifixion. In fact, R.C. Sproul comments that while the death of Jesus is regularly proclaimed from evangelical pulpits, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is rarely addressed except on Easter Sunday morning. He says that's a strange fact given that evangelicals gather for corporate worship on the first day of each week rather than the seventh because Jesus rose on Sunday. He goes on to remark, he says, every Sunday is an implicit celebration of the resurrection of Christ. And we would do well to celebrate it more explicitly. I don't know if you really realize that. That's the reason why we come and why we gather on Sunday mornings is because we are declaring that Jesus Christ is no longer in the grave, that he was resurrected as he was on that first Sunday morning. But all of that kind of made me want to go do a little investigation into my own sermon archives, and so I sort of did that. I went back and pulled up about 11 years' worth of sermons and kind of perused through those. And let me tell you, that is riveting activity to be involved in right there. I confess that just after looking at a cursory overview of all the sermons that I've preached in 11 years, I've preached on the cross more than I have on the resurrection. And I, I fear that maybe I have inadvertently added to what Bob George has described in as the neglected half of the gospel. He writes about that in his book called Classic Christianity. George says that when people are asked about the significance of Christ's death on the cross, they quickly answer that he died for the forgiveness of my sins. But then he says this, when they are, the same people are asked about the significance of Christ's resurrection and how that resurrection applies to our everyday life, he says few people seem to know. In fact, George goes on to say, we Christians are sometimes absolute geniuses at overlooking the obvious. I don't want us to be people that overlook the obvious today. In fact, I want us to consider the details of the resurrection of Jesus as Mark describes them to us. And then I want us to ponder the significance and its application to our lives. So let's begin where we ought to begin. That's by turning to the Word of God and opening it up and reading it together. And so we're going to begin there in chapter 16, verse 1. 
and read down through verse 8. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. Now, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they said among themselves, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter. He is going before you into Galilee. And there you will see him as he said to you. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Our Lord, we thank you for this day. Thank you for being able to gather into this place together as brothers and sisters to be able to sing songs of praise, to be able to read your word, to be able to spend some time studying it, chewing on it, pondering it. I pray that that time for us would be fruitful. I pray that your Holy Spirit might bring wisdom to us and understanding. Help our spiritual eyes to be open and our ears to be open and our heart to be receptive to the truth of your word this morning. Do a great work of redemption in us, we pray, so that you might receive all the glory and all the honor for it. I ask this in the name of Christ and for his sake. Amen. Now, many of you no doubt probably noticed a footnote or a blurb there in your Bibles that say something along the lines of the fact that the earliest manuscripts of Mark's gospel end with verse 8. What that means is that we do not have the, while we don't have the original autograph, as it's called, Mark's original letter that he would have penned, um, the earliest copies of that, that narrative of, of Mark's gospel uh, in existence do not contain verses 9 through 20. In fact, commentaries from the, from the er, very early centuries, first centuries there, that were written by the early church fathers do not mention anything from verses 9 through verse 20. And that evidence, along with extensive studies and research, has led virtually all scholarship from the modern age to conclude that Mark's gospel, as he originally wrote it, ends at verse 8. And that verses 9 through 20 were added by someone else at a later date. And, and I want you to just understand that Lord willing, next Sunday morning when we come back, we will, we will look at those final verses in their own right. But this morning, I want us to consider the way that, that, that Mark concluded his narrative and, and concluded the gospel. And, and just as we read, he tells us that the women who had followed Jesus throughout his earthly ministry, followed him all the way from Galilee to Jerusalem, followed him and once he got to Jerusalem from, through, to the cross, followed him from the cross to the grave, had then 
gone home to celebrate and to observe the Sabbath and then on Sunday morning they returned to the grave in which they had been and they found that it was open and they went inside and an angel announced to them that Jesus had been raised from the dead and that he would go before them into Galilee that they needed to go take that message to the disciples and Peter to let them know and then Mark concludes as I read for you verse 8 by telling us that the women went out quickly and fled from the tomb for they trembled and were amazed and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid now quite frankly that ending has perplexed interpreters and commentators and preachers and readers alike for centuries why would Mark conclude like this? Why would he stop this way? His ending provides no post-resurrection appearance of Jesus. It only provides an announcement from an angel that he had been raised. Mark, Mark makes no mention of joy, nor does he provide any note of triumph. He only speaks of trembling and, and amazement and fear. His abrupt ending does not relate any obedient telling of the good news. Instead, he leaves us with a stunning note of silence. These objections have led some to suggest perhaps the true ending to Mark's gospel was damaged or destroyed in some way. Others suggest that Mark intended to go back and finish his gospel, but he died before he was able to do so. I want you to know there's no external evidence that would corroborate either one of those hypotheses. I will simply say this to you. I believe that this is God's Word and that the Holy Spirit of God is the ultimate author of this text. And therefore, my confidence is in the sovereignty of God to superintend over the Word that He ultimately authored and that eliminates any angst that I may have with regard to a supposed ending that we no longer have or one that Mark was going to write but didn't. In fact, I believe that God has given us everything that we need in his text and in his word. And I believe we can have complete confidence in it because he's sovereign. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't have to wrestle with how Mark ended this text. That doesn't mean that, that Mark decided to tell us everything that we know from the other gospel writers that did happen. He didn't, he didn't write about that. In fact, that's why many believe verses 9 through 20 were added at a later date was sort of to fill in those blanks. But however, I believe in wrestling and chewing on Mark's ending of verse 8, I have come to wonder if perhaps Mark wasn't at least attempting to get his readers to ponder as Bob George does, how easy it is for us to miss the significance and the application of the resurrection of Jesus. How easy it is for us to overlook the obvious. And that's what I want us to do this morning. I just want us to walk back through those verses. And as I've done on previous weeks, so do I do today. That is, provide you with just a few words that sort of hang out there as hooks for us to hang our thoughts on as we work our way through the text. And so I want to give you the first word that I believe sort of stands over the top of this text. And the first word that I provided for you this morning is simply this. It's hopelessness. Hopelessness. You remember when we last encountered the women there at the tomb, back in chapter 15, 
They had watched as Jesus' body had been wrapped in those fine linen cloths that Joseph of Arimathea had, had bought and brought to the tomb. And, and he, along with Nicodemus, as John tells us in his gospel, took aloes and myrrh and mixed that together into a, an ointment that would have then been added to those cloths and soaked into those cloths as they were wrapped around Jesus' body. That was not done to embalm Jesus. It was done, as the Jewish way of burying was, it was done simply to keep down the smell of the decay of a body that was decomposing. The women had been there at the tomb and they had watched that process take place. And then Mark tells us back in chapter 15, verse 47, that they also observed where Jesus was laid. And that gave them a full understanding of exactly the tomb in which Jesus' body would have been. Now, what we also know is that Jesus breathed his last at 3 p.m. on Friday and that the Sabbath would have begun at 6 p.m., on Friday, which left a short period of time for them to take care of, of all of those details. And so all of that had been done with haste. And then we, we would have understood is that Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, as well as Salome, and whoever else may have been there around the tomb that Friday, they would have left to go home and observe the Sabbath as was required by law. And no doubt, all day Saturday, these women grieved. They, they mourned the loss of their master. They mourned the loss of their teacher. They mourned the loss of their Lord and their friend. And, and, and from their perspective, everything had happened so quickly. Jesus had been ripped from them, and he had been treated so horribly. He had been falsely accused. He'd been unjustly tried. He'd been inhumanely beaten. He'd been cruelly crucified, and he had been hurriedly buried. And the one in whom these women had placed their hope and their, all of their, their, their joy was wrapped up in him, now he was suddenly gone. And now the observance of the Sabbath had, had really come at this, at this point which it prevented them from being able to say a proper goodbye. Everything had happened so quickly on that Friday evening that they had not been able to properly mourn and, and gain closure from saying goodbye to Jesus. And so Mark tells us that once the Sabbath was over, the women went and bought spices to anoint Jesus' body. And because the, the Sabbath would have concluded at 6 p.m. on Saturday, but still the sun would have been going down, and so they, they probably went out and bought the spices then and made their plan to get together the next day. Early in the morning, they wanted to make their way back to the tomb where Jesus had been laid. And we know that this is such a sad scene. Any of you who have ever had to bury a loved one knows what this, this scene of grief and loss is like. A hole is left in your heart. There's, there's a pain that you take with you that, that nothing can really make better. It aches there, and, and implicit in the action of these women is that, as I said, they had not gotten the opportunity to show the affection and their devotion to Jesus on the day that he had been crucified and buried. And so it was on this Sunday morning that they head back to the tomb in order to do that. They simply wanted to, to anoint his body and to pay their last respects to the one in whom they had placed so much hope.
And that's why I placed that word hopelessness here at the front end of this text. You see, these women were, were going to the tomb not in hopes of finding out that a supernatural miracle had occurred. That, that was not what was on their mind. They rather were expecting to find a decaying corpse. My mother, just in the last week, wanted to go to the, the graves of both sets of my grandparents, her parents and my dad's mom and dad, as well as my brother. And she went there to take flowers to, to put on the tomb and to, to pull back any weeds that might have grown in on the top of that. When my mother made her way to those five tombs, she never expected to find life. She knew what she would find when she went there. She would find the place where our loved ones of our family were buried. That's exactly what these women expected to find the place and they expected to find the body of Jesus there was no excitement in the air there was no joy they weren't skipping and singing as they made their way there there was sadness their hearts were heavy their lives were empty what hung over that that Sunday morning was nothing short of gloom and defeat and, and despair but then I want you to notice this though once they got to that tomb that sense of hopelessness was overshadowed by something else. That's the second word that I want you to see this morning. Hopelessness was replaced by shock. Shock. See, evidently in their despair, the women had forgotten something that had taken place on Friday. They'd forgotten that the stone had been rolled in front of the tomb so that, so that it would keep out any who was trying to get in, any animals that might have wanted to get into a dead body, any grave robbers that would wanted to, to have stolen any of the wrappings, anybody who might have wanted to get into the tomb would have been blocked by the fact that a stone had been rolled in front of it. Evidently, the women had forgotten about that, which is, gives further credibility to the fact that they were so overwhelmed with grief and sorrow that they didn't take into consideration that they were not strong enough to move that stone from in front of the tomb. And so they begin to wonder to themselves, who will roll the stone away for us? But Mark tells us that, that, that their concern was unfounded because when they got to the tomb, they found that the stone was already rolled away. And that was a shocking thing for them to find. It's not what they expected. But then that leads to the women going inside the tomb and they found something else that they did not expect to find because Mark tells us that there was a man, a young man, clothed in a long white robe, sitting on the right side. Two in implications from what Mark tells us that we can derive from that. First of all, the young man clothed in a white robe was, was an angel. The other Gospels tell us that explicitly. In fact, Matthew says he calls him an angel of the Lord and says about him, his countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. In other words, I imagine as they went into that dark tomb, when they laid their eyes on him, it caused them to have to shield themselves from the brightness of his figure. The second thing, though, that we can infer is that he was sitting on the right side, and by the fact that Mark makes that statement, tells us that he was probably sitting on the opposite side of the side of which Jesus had been laid. You remember in Luke, I mentioned this last week, that when the, when, when the women were there at the tomb, they not only noticed exactly where 
Jesus had been laid. In other words, the location of the tomb. They observed how he had been laid. In other words, they knew exactly where he was in that tomb. The angel of the Lord is there to point them to that spot and say, do you see? He's not here. So the angel, the angel has a, a, a very specific role in this entire text. Mark tells us that he was there to point them to the fact that the body was no longer in the tomb. And Mark tells us that at this point, since they have found the stone rolled away, since they've encountered an angel, and now they see that Jesus' body is not there, the women were alarmed. The word that Mark uses there in the Greek is a word that is unique to him. And it literally means to be moved to an intense emotional state because of something causing great surprise and perplexity. Really, it just means to be very excited. And it's right about here that we as Christians really get excited. Right here, we as Christians who know the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say, we really get excited because we know, we know what the empty tomb means. We know Jesus isn't in the tomb because he's been raised from the dead. But in order for us to really appreciate the intense emotional state, the, the alarm, the shock that all of this would have caused these women, we deemed not to jump to that conclusion just yet. Let's walk, let's walk through it with them. Because consider this, the only physical evidence that these women had was that Jesus' body was missing. Based purely upon that evidence, these women had no way of being able to interpret what they had found. In fact, John tells us that Mary Magdalene had gotten there in front of the other ones, and when she saw that the, roll, the stone was rolled away, she immediately turned and ran and told the disciples, somebody's come and taken Jesus' body, and we don't know where they've laid it. That's what makes the presence of the angel such a key component to this narrative. You see, the angel of the Lord was there in that tomb to interpret for the women the meaning of the tomb's emptiness. In other words, the natural evidence that the women found that day would have naturally led them to a false conclusion. In fact, it took supernatural intervention to provide them with the correct interpretation of the evidence that they found. Mark gives us that correct interpretation in verses 6 and 7. He says, don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, the specific man that you are looking for, Jesus of Nazareth, the one who was crucified, making sure that they understood they were at the right address. The man that you're looking for, he's not here. Why? Because he has been raised from the dead. Not only that, he says, see the place where they've laid him. Go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee, and there you will see him as he said to you. Now, understand this. As they walked into that tomb, they would have looked and said, he's not here. My immediate thought is, is that somebody has come and taken his body away. The angel is there to interpret for them correctly. No, no one has come and stolen him. God, through his supernatural power, has raised him from the dead. They would not have jumped to that conclusion on their own. It took God interpreting the things for them. I want you to understand this morning, God through his word has given us everything we need to be able to interpret the things that we see around us. 
And if we use natural eyes and our natural understandings to try to understand a lot of the things that are out there, we will naturally come to false conclusions, which is why God has given us His Word to help us see things in the proper perspective and with a proper understanding. Not only does He give us the good news, the angel says that He has been raised from the dead, but He gives them hope. He says, He's not here. He's risen. And he's going before you to Galilee. Do you, do you see implicit in that a message of hope? It's a message of hope that says he's not, he's not left you. You're going to be reconnected with him again. You have a hope for the future. You may have come here without any hope, but now you've got some. He's going to go before you into the future. And then with that, he also tells him, now go tell this information to my disciples and to Peter. Which, which means that we've been given the good news of the, the resurrection of Christ. We've been given the application of it that it brings hope to our lives that are hopeless. And then it, with that also comes a commission to take that good news to others who need to hear it. All of that is included in the angel's words. Now, we might also say, but wait. The women and the disciples should have known, and this is true, Jesus had said on multiple occasions that when he got to Jerusalem that he would be arrested, that he would be, that he would be treated unfairly, that he would be delivered over to the Gentiles, that he would be crucified, but that he would rise again on the third day. Chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10. Three separate times he told them that. Also in chapter 14, verse 28, he says, After I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Just the night before he was arrested, Jesus had said those words. So the truth is, if the women and his disciples had really listened to what Jesus said and believed him, they would not have gone to the tomb. They would have gone to Galilee, where they knew he would be. But in their grief and in their mourning and in their hopelessness, they had failed to remember, they had failed to obey. And so they went back to the empty tomb. I wonder how often we're like them. How often in our own interpretation of the natural things that we come across in our lives and the fears that we experience and the difficulties that we go through, how often do we also forget the promises that Jesus has made? How often do we metaphorically Go back to the tomb rather than going to Galilee where he has promised us he would be. Now, there's another element of shock here in this passage, and, and, and it's, it's, I've, I've highlighted it a couple of times. He, the angel tells the women to go tell Jesus' disciples and Peter. And many have wondered, well, why does he single out Peter? Well, some have said he singles out Peter because at this point Jesus did not really consider him to be one of his disciples anymore because Peter had denied the Lord three separate times there in the courtyard of the high priest and, and because that he had been expelled from the group. Others argue the other side, say, well, Peter really didn't consider himself to be a disciple anymore because he knew how badly he had failed. And so he excluded himself from the group. I don't know which way to go with that or either one of them is either correct. I don't know. My interpretation is just simply this. In the angel's words, we find a message of grace and mercy for a disciple who had failed in a spectacular way. You see, no one had boasted more than Peter. No one had been more confident in their own abilities than Peter had been. Yet, 
Though all the disciples fled from Jesus on that night that he was arrested, though all of them had stumbled as Jesus had said that they would, none of them had fallen so publicly and in such a humiliating way as Peter had. And yet the angel makes sure that all of those who had failed, including the biggest failure of all, recognized that Jesus had not abandoned them but in fact was going before them to meet them in Galilee. So in other words, implicit in the resurrection message is a message of forgiveness and hope. It is a message of promise and new beginnings. It is a message of restoration and new life. And all of that was there in this angel's message, which not only interpreted for the women the evidence that they had found, but commissioned them to take that good news back to the others. And that's where we get back to verse 8. This ominous note with which Mark ends his gospel. So the women went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And that fact alerts me to the last word on your outline this morning. It's the word fear. See, after coming to the empty tomb and finding the angel inside, these women left absolutely petrified over what they had seen and heard. Mark says they experienced a state of trombos in the Greek. It's, it's a word that literally means trembling and quivering. And so it even our English translations even sort of sound like that word in the Greek, trembling and, and quaking. It's a, it's a state of being physically unable to control oneself because of fear. Furthermore, he tells us they were in a state of ecstasis, which is which we get our English word ecstasy from. It's a word that literally means a state of consternation or profound emotional experience to the point of being beside oneself. Literally, what Mark is telling us is that because of the fear that they had, they could not control their bodies or their minds. They were overcome by fear. And in many respects, I think I can understand that. I mean, the truth is, whenever there is a human encounter with the angelic or with the supernatural in the scriptures, there's always an experience of fear. In fact, Mark doesn't tell us about this, but Matthew does, that when, when the guards who had been placed there to guard the tomb, when they encountered the angel, Mark tells us that, that they shook for fear, they couldn't control their bodies, and that they became as dead men because they couldn't control their minds. It was the fear of, of this angelic being. And that is a common reaction to such encounters with the divine and the supernatural in the Bible. As Mark concludes his gospel with these women running away from the tomb, they are trembling, they are bewildered, and they are silent. And he tells us that all of that stemmed from the fact that they were afraid. And as Jeff Thomas has written, he has said that such a reaction is actually proof that the women had experienced God close up. He writes, the fact that they were shattered, distraught people means that God was in that tomb. They have, been, they have seen the divine glory and they are afraid. They are silenced because of the impact that God's word had made on them. And they don't find it easy to pray and their mouths are too dry to sing. Another writer states it this way, these women were soul shaken. Well, 
though the soul-shaking fear that these women experienced is evidence of the supernatural encounter they had just had, I also believe that Mark would have us to know that there's great irony in the fact that their fear silenced them. Do you remember at the beginning of Mark, what we continued to read week after week, every time Jesus would heal somebody, he would tell them, now go back to your place and don't say anything. And what would they do? They would go out and tell everybody what Jesus had done. Again and again and again, be quiet. I can't be quiet. I went out and told everybody what had happened to me. Whenever Jesus came across one who was demon-possessed, the demons knew who Jesus was and they would announce his identity and Jesus would shush them and tell them to be quiet. Why? Because he did not want them to tell any more about him until the right time had come. Even in Mark chapter 8, when Jesus says, Who do men say that I am? And Peter said, You are the Christ. At that point, Jesus strictly warned Peter as the rest of the disciples to not say anything about that to anyone. Why? Because the timing was not right. And yet here, after Jesus has risen from the dead, on Sunday morning, the timing was right. Go tell my disciples. And Mark says they left in fear and trembling and alarm, and they were silent. Such an ironic twist, the way that Mark presents the end. We do know that the women did go and tell. We would not have the scriptures if they had not. And even Mark's readers would have known that the women actually went on to tell. In fact, the way that I understand and, and interpret verse 8 is that the women went and they didn't say anything to anyone else along the way, but they eventually did go to the disciples to tell them exactly what had happened and to announce to them what they had heard. And I would say to you, even in that, we have, we have the understanding that there's a historical reality of the resurrection because women in that day and time were not considered to be quality witnesses. They were not believable. In fact, if you recall, when the women got to the disciples to tell them that Jesus had risen from the dead, the disciples didn't initially believe them. They thought that they were carrying idle tales. But that even in itself is more proof of the reality of the resurrection. Because if the disciples and if Jesus' followers had wanted to, to, to fabricate Jesus' resurrection from the dead, they would not have done that by making the first witnesses women they would have chosen another group to have been those first witnesses but I also look at it this way just as it was at the birth of Jesus that was announced to some shepherds who by the way were not quality witnesses in first century world so his resurrection was announced to women and God always chooses to do things in ways that astound us. And in his wisdom and in his divine providence and, and sovereignty, God allowed these women to be the first to proclaim the resurrection of his son to the world. And it is even there that we see how Jesus reverses things. And quite frankly, as I have chewed on and wrestled with the way that Mark ends his gospel account, I have wondered if that was not what he wanted to communicate to us all along. You see, as I pointed out to begin with, I'm not always convinced that you and I understand the significance of the resurrection. I'm not always convinced that we apply it the way that it ought to be applied to our lives. And at the moment that these women first encountered the empty tomb and the message of the angel that interpreted for them the evidence that they found, I don't believe they fully under appreciated the significance in the application either. You see, they were living as Kent Hughes has 
described them as Saturday's children. You see, in other words, they were living as people who were hopeless and they were in shock and they were struggling with disappointment over their own failures and over the fact that their Lord had died. And they were uncertain of the future that lay in front of them. But when they came to the empty tomb, it was no longer Saturday, it was Sunday. And what they encountered there was a resurrected Christ. And that, that resurrection of Christ changed everything for them. It reversed everything that they had brought with them to the tomb. And that then leads me to my sermon in a sense this morning, which is this. The historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus brings joy out of despair, restoration out of failure, and faith out of fear. That's the significance. That's the application of the resurrection. It tells us that we're no longer Saturday's children. That's why we gather on Sunday morning. You see, we are those whose lives have been transformed by the death and the burial and, yes, the resurrection of Christ. And the question that bears in upon us this morning is, is that your story? Have you come to understand the significance of the empty tomb and the resurrection of Jesus? Have you come to understand that he has come to bring life? He has come to reverse the hopelessness of the sinful life by bringing you hope, hope that only rests in him. He has come to bring forgiveness and redemption to, to those like Peter and like me and like every one of you in this room who have fallen short of the glory of God. He has come to tell us that we have no reason to run away from him in fear, but that we have every reason to run to him boldly in faith to be able to receive the grace that he offers to us. Jesus Christ was crucified, buried, and resurrected so that you and I might be forgiven of our sins and given abundant, everlasting life. The question is, is that a reality for you? The Bible tells us that if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. My prayer is that if you have not done that, that you will today. And then my further prayer is that if you have done that, if you have truly confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then the question is, are you living in the joy and with the restoration and in the faith that his resurrection brings? Or, or are you continuing to base your life upon the interpretation that you get as you just look around you at the world? Apart from the message of God's holy word that has been given to you to interpret that for you properly. My prayer is this morning is that we would be a people who don't miss the obvious. That we don't miss the fact that Christ has come to bring us life. And that he has demonstrated that by being raised from the dead. And that he has died for our sins, but he has been raised for our justification as the scriptures teach us. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God, and it is for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning.